Can we change the way we produce food to both meet the needs of humans whilst regenerating our soils and ecosystems? And can we do so in a way that improves the financial viability of farms? These questions are becoming increasingly urgent to answer, and we're here to investigate a promising technique called agroforestry in order to find out how it can help us with these challenges. We'll be interviewing farmers, scientists, and other experts to share with you their experiences, practical advice, and scientific research. Hello, everyone, and welcome on the Regenerative Agroforestry Podcast. We're your hosts, Dimitri and Etienne. And today, we're very excited to be interviewing Ethan, Harry, and Jeremy, founders of Propagate Ventures, an innovative company that connects economics, analytics, and agroforestry, helping farmers integrate perennial systems on their farms whilst connecting investors to the value of trees. So welcome on the podcast. We're really happy to have you here. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Well, we're very excited to, to have you guys on and to talk about all of the amazing work that you're doing at Propagate. But before we, we get into that, do you think you could tell us a bit about how you guys started getting interested in trees and in, and in agroforestry? Sure. Uh, let me tell you the, uh, the story of how we all found our way into agroforestry and regenerative agriculture uh, for, for each of us and for different reasons. And I'll let Jeremy and Harry jump in here. Uh, we, we all found agriculture through food mm-hmm. in search of healthy food for Jeremy and myself uh, for health care reasons. For example, I'm diabetic, and so um, the food I eat has a direct impact on my health. Um, Jeremy has a similar journey around that, um, although uh, sans the diabetes. <laughs> and with with Harry, he worked. He worked. I mean, Harry, what the first quarter of your life where you were an Olympic hopeful, and so good food meant athletic performance. And I think for for all of us, once we opened that door to start looking at how is food produced, where can we get the most healthy food, um, it's a very natural gateway to having conversations with farmers and and getting a deeper understanding of of how agriculture operates. Now, that's a whole basket of worms. And all of a sudden, you get into the food system and the how land is managed and the the health of our ecosystems, which naturally put us into a journey, uh, learning more and getting our hands dirty with agroforestry in particular, because we were all grew up with a passion around trees, either running through the forest or um, just being mildly connected uh, to, to trees by being born on Earth Day, for example. Um, <laughs> and so, so all that comes together. We've, we've now learned about agroforestry, regenerative agriculture. Um, and then the follow-up question to all that for us, and this is where the, the inception of Propagate comes in, the sort of light bulb moment, if you will, uh, trying to answer the question, why are trees not part of the conventional agricultural model, model today? Uh, and it, because they're not the standard, what what can we do to make it easy for farmers and everybody else that would be involved to utilize trees as an effective tool uh, in the toolkit of agriculture? 
I'll I'll stop there. Uh, Jeremy Harry, do you guys want to maybe add a little bit of a flair to what I've shared? Of course, yeah. Just just on a personal note, b- building off of the where our food comes from idea for for me with athletics the 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 macronutrient sources i.e fat carbs protein having that be having those those places those landscapes where the food i was eating came from be in concert with my land stewardship ethic that that was extremely important um and growing up in a forested biome uh next to about 50 acres of orchard uh actually in massachusetts the the connection say between intact forest and clean water and say cropland that was tilled and water that uh, was murky uh, was always very visceral. So linking that in uh, with, with so I guess agroforestry being the resulting paradigm from that um, that 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 uh that really emerged when i guess back during undergrad when i was in a finance course and reading a book on agroforestry at the same time and that that's really when the light bulb went off for me so uh it's 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 been a great journey um linking up together as propagate over the past 4 years or so um and i i guess Jeremy, you can you can also jump in maybe with your your background in the in the timber products business. Yeah, you know, um, the as a kid, I grew up in a third generation family business doing stand rail, railing manufacturing um, at a relatively large scale, um, and coming out of that, going into kind of my older years and having some health struggles, you know, I was inspired to start farming. Um, in college and through that journey kind of saw the kind of mismatch between kind of the way in which we were managing resources on farms and what was being done in terms of manufactured goods across the world. Um, And so that really led uh, me on a journey um, to find agroforestry as a solution set to helping solve a lot of those problems. Um, You know, I, I would add here that um, it wasn't so clear in the early days um, of that discovery process that it was a possibility um, following kind of the um, early inspirations of people who went out and did it on their own um, was really the kind of nugget of potential um, that enabled kind of the discovery of agroforestry as a potential solution. Um I would say it's 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 not an easy place to land um, from an economics perspective um, when looking for solutions to these problems. Um, and I'm glad I, I'm glad kind of that's where um, my journey brought brought me, but also um, where together we landed um, as a good solution set to focus on. Yeah, and, and so what what Jeremy and Harry are pointing out is kind of turned into this, like uh, I guess in, infamous motto. At, at propagate where all the three of us and we want to have this be part of the the culture and the day-to-day because we're all so passionate about the food system and agriculture is that we really feel it's it's important to demand that the health of our our land and our ecosystem 
is the same as the health of the food that we want to eat. And now that's, that's, that's fairly macro um, or, or maybe bird's eye view. But at the end of the day, the, the goal that we all are, are striving for with Propagate is to create an, to create a business that can, can drive that forward where there are healthy landscapes that are biodiverse um, and that produce food that's very healthy uh, and delivers caloric value. Great. Okay, well, so what we were thinking to basically give an idea of what you guys are doing exactly is maybe you can walk us through uh, the different stages of a project, kind of from the beginning to the end, so that everyone gets an idea of the whole different levels um, and the different activities that you offer through uh, the solution and through your platform. So maybe just to start off, you could tell us uh, who usually initiates the projects. Is it farmers coming to you or investors? And from what end does it start? To answer your question, um, it's a range. Um, we have farmers that come to us. We have investors that come to us. We have nonprofits and as well as buyers and brands that come to us. And really the, the way in which they find us is they're looking out at their landscapes and looking for um, holistic solutions to solving problems in their landscapes. And those problems typically land into two categories, um, diminishing on-farm income and stability from an economic perspective um, and diminishing ecological um, diversity and kind of some clear ecological problems that are occurring on their farms. And so depend depending on what each of those stakeholders that we're working with, um, they all come to us with kind of a different mix of those two things um, in the level of, of how they weigh those um, in, in their thinking. The way in which we engage with them really is on the upfront, helping define their context and their goals. So that way we can get a, a really good sense of the, where they want to lean in terms of the type of systems and crops they would potentially focus on um, in integrating with their existing production systems. Oftentimes what this looks like is we're working with a farm, they're, in, they're, they're, they're raising cattle, they're interested in the shade benefits of trees on their cattle in their pastures um, to be able to increase weight gain in the heat of summer. Um, but um, where we kind of have to understand is what is their labor capacity? Um, what is their infrastructure? How close are they to markets? And as a result, we can help really define what the right fit crop is for their goals, both from an economic perspective in the outcomes that they're seeking on the farm, um, as well as from a lifestyle perspective based upon their context and what they want to manage today and where they want to be managing and what they want to be managing 10 years out. Um, that really helps define the upfront of the process and helps us get buy-in for a plan that is really co-developed with each of those stakeholders. From there, we have an analysis tool that we've built that enables us to run 30-year-long economics on each of these systems and what it will take to implement them on the farm level based upon their specific context. And by their specific context, what I mean is, what is their machinery? Um, on the farm, how do they want to manage? Do they want to manage from a low maintenance perspective or from an intensive management perspective? So we can really kind of get into the details of 
what type of infrastructure they need to build and the efficiencies that they're, they're seeking with the infrastructure that they're going to have on the farm. Um, that analysis, and I'm happy to dive into kind of the details of that, which I think is a robust part for uh, maybe of this conversation. Um, but at a high level, maybe we can kind of paint the picture um, and go from there. Once they run through that analysis process, the next phase is project development, um, where we work with them with tools that we've built to enable them to go out and actually plant the project. Um, and depending on the farm, the way in which we do that ranges in a, in a wide array of potential service that we provide. At the most basic level, um, we work with them um, to help source the right quality tree genetics to ensure that they're actually meeting the expectations of what the projections were in the analysis. Um, that swings all the way through to us actually providing the full suite of project development services, working with local labor, working with local mach um, machine operators to actually implement the system on their farm. Um, so that full range of project development can really be um, context specific. Some farms have the tools and the labor and the know-how to go out and implement. Some farms need us to be able to bring that training onto the farm and the ability to actually implement with a high efficacy onto the farm. And then the final piece of what we do is financing, um, which really the big kind of key to that whole um, part of our business is being able to invest into the trees as assets separate from the land and to enable multi-party engagement into those trees. Um, a big part of what we do is focusing on working with third-party investors to be able to finance those trees for farms that are interested in being partners on a long-term basis that don't necessarily have the capital to buy into those systems over that long time period. A lot of the time, these systems are expensive. Um, this is essentially farm infrastructure. Um, and so having that third-party capital source is really key to being able to help a lot more farms transition toward agroforestry. I'm gonna stop there and maybe we can dive into more specifics. Thank you for that overview of the whole process. Does one of you want to explain to us a bit more about that process of analytics? Um, you know, what kind of data do you use and what methodology do you mobilize? Of course, yeah. Um, let me provide uh, a few sentences with a bit of jargon and then we can we can deconstruct that from there so ev everything starts with taking a look at the biogeophysical climate around the farm so weather patterns soil type so what's going on in that regard coupled with savory's holistic management framework so what do the decision makers actually want out of their land so we have biological factors and social factors those are the inputs there so say that's a uh, in-depth uh, survey and conversation uh, and holistic context development that's coupled with landscape architecture, um, tools, and software. Uh, so that, say uh, robust KML files is another input there. And then the outputs on the back end are 30-year-long income statements. So what uh, starts out as landscape architecture actually finishes as very comprehensive agronomy work. I think it's important to talk a bit about from an agro, just from a, an agroforestry level, what's important when looking and designing a landscape. Um, 
and then kind of what we do in being able to do that. So an important concept is this concept of overyield, um, which is the ability to increase um, the productivity of an acre by bringing multiple crops together um, as compared to them in, in isolation. And what we do um, in terms of looking at it from a design perspective is trying to maximize the trade-off between any losses in productivity and any gains in productivity by bringing systems together. And what that looks like is if we're looking at a cattle production system or hay or looking at row crops, looking at being able to understand um, the, the data behind at what spacing of that system does it make sense to grow the crop um, that you want, that is the primary yield, which is the hay or the row crop or the, um, the cattle or other livestock production system um, with a tree crop integrated into that system. So part of that design process is being able to understand things like data like light penetration to the understory, light captured by the tree, and being able to optimize from a geophysical perspective the 30-year-long kind of goals in aligning with those trees that are being planted. So an example of this is, let's say you want to maximize um, cattle weight gain um, and you want to be able to ensure that productivity of um, the grasses between the trees maintains a certain level of volume as well as protein content. So we have the kind of the, the data sets that enable us to make the decisions in terms of spacing that allow for us to maximize the, the amount of um, cattle that you have on the farm in terms of the feed required. While, so not compromising on that while being able to integrate that second layer of trees into that production system. Um, from an analysis perspective, what that looks like is a sub-centimeter accurate um, GIS-enabled design of where the trees are going onto the map. So that way, the, if the farm is technologically complex um, and they actually have the equipment to, to plug that into their tractors, um, they can automate some processes in terms of planting, mowing, etc. around where the trees are. Um, but it also is important to know that those maps can translate um, down to somebody who might not necessarily have that technological capacity um, just through things like basic GNS um, and GPS services that they can implement on the farm. Um, in terms of the agronomy side, a big part of that is being able to understand the growth rates of those trees and how that plays into the economics of being able to both manage the biomass, manage the fruit or nut of that tree, um, but also um, to be able to understand the revenue side of what's possible in terms of the offtakes. And from a lot of what that defines those uh, potential um, outcomes is looking at site infrastructure. So the equipment, the efficiency of that equipment, the protocols of management and, and how much it takes to manage that crop. And then the market side of what's possible in terms of how many um, potential sales and the price of those within um, the given crop that's being focused on um, it's is possible with the farm where that farm is located the infrastructure that's around that farm be it cold storage wineries um, food brands etc um, restaurants um, and building and being able to build out a strategy that encompasses all the factors that are unique to that farm um, is what allows us to kind of take those geophysical pieces of spacing 
and the market and cost pieces of managing um, to be able to put out a highly um, efficacious um, model for what that implementation can look like. Great. And where do you get this data from? Is it from uh, university studies? I was wondering, what's the raw material? Yeah, of course, I, I can jump in there. It's it's very much from disparate sources. So yes, university studies, yes, uh, calling up farmers in specific locations and asking them about their yields or going to those farms. Um, And what we're doing is also creating mechanistic models. So based based off of certain assumptions, what can we expect expect from yields, say, uh, in year nine in upstate New York, given yields in year seven in down down in Kentucky, for example. So that's just different latitudes for those that are, are not in the United in the United States. And um, how how do you manage to synchronize then this uh, data with the local context and some of the particularities of farms? Then because you know we all know that from a farm to farm there's so many differences. And how do you make sure that you can be relevant to that context? Yeah, of course. So a lot of it, it's so it's all location specific. Um, as you're noting, and if there are yields um, that that are, we'll say in in the direct vicinity, we'll look at growth rates of single trees. Excuse me, single trees, um, and really create forecasts from there. Um, the, the the catch here is that we're often working with crops that are, we'll say growth market crops, like chestnuts in the United States, like black currants in, in the Northeast United States. So what we gain in kind of majority market share in a formerly niche market, we might compromise on certainty in projections. Uh, that being said, um, working in enough, say, uh, correct contingency factors allows us to predict with generally very good certainty what yields are going to look like. Yeah, and and I'll kind of jump in and, and add to all that. I mean, based off of everything that both Jeremy and Harry have, have outlined, and you can get an understanding that there's a lot of detail and nuance that's associated with with making an agroforestry system very successful, a lot of what we want to do and what we're we're actively doing is taking those very complex details and simplifying them so that a farmer can have all of the insights they need to more confidently manage an agroforestry system, whether they're transitioning to an agroforestry system or starting a new one. A, a lot of those details around geophysical, um, economic markets that are otherwise really extraordinary question marks for an operator, that we can remove some of those barriers and 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 provide a, a very like simplified way to approach these components so that the the transparency and access to information is is very clear, while also making sure, as Harry pointed out, 
that from a, a place-based perspective, there's some economies of scale or, or what we like to say economies of place that are supportive in terms of what one farm or multiple farms require in the same region. Um, when you look at, a, for example, a, um, an, an agroforest system, a silver arable agroforest system, there's a lot of different interactions there between um, the tree and and the plant and the crop. Uh, trees, uh, for example, you know, trees reducing wind damage and therefore increasing crop yield, or trees increasing um, the the soil organic matter, which can then have an impact on on water content and again on fertility productivity. Do you manage to get to that level of detail in your modeling? So the below ground interactions, say, between roots and crops uh, and based on water availability, at least in the non-brittle, high precipitation climates of the majority of the locations of where we're working, are less important than the light interactions. So how much irradiance a tree captures, how much photosynthetic active radiation that tree canopy is intercepting um, as that light makes its way down to the crop. So what, what's important to look at, uh, number one, is how much light is the tree capturing and over time, how is that changing? So that, that's really contingent on, on three factors. Um, we, we actually know this from the research that the, the SAFE uh, report the safe um, well it's it's silvo arable agroforestry for Europe uh, mostly out of out of France and Montpellier um, three three factors there so it's they they have an equation it's the canopy width of the tree the diameter breast height and then the distance from the tree itself dictates how much light is passing through the canopy um, and. From there, we can look at you know what what species have different size canopies in different years, and what does that interaction look like between the tree and the crop beneath? Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, we have to ask the question: Are we maximizing yield, so dry matter itself, or are we maximizing profitability? So if the margins on the grain crop below or the pasture crop below um, a really second um, and, and say lower than the margins on the tree crop yields, then it would make more sense to uh, pr prioritize the tree crop yields and say put more space between those rows. Um, excuse me, that would be the opposite. If the tree crop margins and we'll say net income is higher than the understory, then we would um, say put, put less space and prioritize the trees and uh, more space for the opposite. Okay, so you're not necessarily um, including so much of the data on the impact of the trees on the soil on the crops in this case, because it's got just to, to understand it's got less of an impact. Exactly. Um, and the light, the light is the predominant factor that will impact the production of the intercrop, for example. Yes, one hundred percent, and that's that's pretty consistent from southern France, say Mediterranean Montpellier, over to uh, Guelph, Ontario. Is, is what they found as, as pretty consistent. And then uh, in uh, eastern China, at about the latitude of, of South Korea, uh, they, they found the same thing over there. 
That's super interesting. And could, could you guys give us some examples of some of the systems that you guys have been designing and, and helping farmers implement? Maybe some of your favorites? Yeah, um, that, that's, that's the fun part. Um, the, you know, so, some of the favorites that I think we've really landed on with farms are integrating um, black locust into um, the cattle production rotational grazing systems um, down in Maryland. And that where is, is where we're doing relatively wide spaced alleys of black locust integrated with um, a rotation system um, of Ang- Angus cattle. Um, another one um, is black currant production systems um, integrated with hay um, at a relatively um, tight spacing for, for hay, which is about 20 foot row centers. Um, still allows for per- most of that hay to be um, in production over the lifespan of that system um, while getting a quality yield out of um, the black current. And then another one would be um, chestnut production systems, um, being able to integrate cattle as well as hay crops into chestnut. Um, and those are different spacings for the hay side versus for the cattle side of things. Um, really, maxi- on the cattle side, it's about maximizing forage, forage growth. So it's a little bit of a wider spacing. Um, and on the hay side, you can get away with a little bit of a tighter spacing um, if you're max if you're if you're looking at protein goal certain goals within that hay crop um, like protein production um, rather than volume. Um, so it, it's a it's a wide array of stuff um, that we'd like to look at. Um, and then we've done some projects where we're looking at integrating with um, corn or soy production systems where those are super wide spaced ban- orchard bands of things like peaches. Um, as well as some longer term hardwoods um, like black walnut and um, swamp white oaks, um, as well as some uh, black locust as well integrated into those systems. Um, so more of a long-term um, and short rotational hardwood uh, integration with row crop systems. Um, I'll, I'll leave it there and I'm happy to kind of dive into any of those that you think um, are interesting. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be able to go into like more examples as we illustrate the conversation as we progress. One thing I wanted to ask is, I'm assuming there's a lot of testing that's going out. Are you able then to kind of feedback information and to record what's going on compared to the projections you made? Oh yeah, that's hugely important. Every every project we have, uh, we we record the successes at the kind of the at the at the various lo- levels of um, the system, right? And everything t- from looking at weed suppression at, in terms of bait, main, base maintenance of the trees based upon a given protocol through to tree growth um, in terms of height, um, tree vigor, um, tree health, um, things of that nature. Um, and, you know, you re- there's kind of two sides to this, looking at kind of the um, lagging indicators versus the leading indicators of, of these systems. And at the end of the day, looking at maximizing yield as of the, of the tree outputs that you're looking for. Um, those feedback loops come in longer term periods. Um, and so it's while we have um, indicators that we can focus on while we're kind of the, er- the early stages of these projects, um, those indicators um, don't necessarily tell us everything we need to know about the yield that will come from these projects um, as we move toward production. Um, 
plant, plant health vigor um, is really kind of where the we like to focus on in terms of the short-term uh, measurements that'll, that enable us to say that pro a project's being successful, a protocol has been successful, or a protocol hasn't been successful um, based from a project-by-project project basis. And you manage this uh, data collection, or is this uh, data collection managed by the, by the farmer? It's project by project. And so depending on okay. the farm's capacity and time commitment to the project, um, they can manage it themselves or we can uh, provide that as a resource. Um, kind of a, it's also worth noting that every farm has a different level of, um, different level of, um, how do I say it, bu budget and time constraints with regards to how much they want to put into these systems. And so some farms measure them more robustly and some farms we don't measure them nearly as robustly. And we're looking for kind of some one or two key indicators for success versus five to 10 on certain projects. Yeah, and just to give an example there, if it's a silvo pasture system, then the grazer is going to be much more interested in uh, understanding cow days per acre as the system goes on than we are. And we're going to be much more interested in diameter breast height of the timber trees or things like yield on the black currants. And um, so now you've got this, you've got this design set out that you've worked with the farmer, you've created the context and, um, and you've used your data to find out what's the best species, what's the best system, spacings, etc. And now you're ready to go to the project development phase. And so you said it works out in different ways, depending on the skills and the capacity and the infrastructure of the farmer, right? Um, do you guys sometimes manage the whole implementation or is this something that you do you usually out? Does the farm usually take care of that? We usually partner with the farm um, to bridge any required um, needs of that farm specifically. And so that can range from us just providing um, protocols and technical services to us actually um, providing all of the labor inputs and um, being the so-called so foreman of that project. At the end of the day, we're responsible for ensuring that the project meets the analytics ex that expectations that it set forth. So for us, we have a vested interest in ensuring that that farm, whether or not we're the ones managing the planting um, are doing so in a fashion that uh, enables them to be successful. In Greece, um, in our in our context on Mazi Farm, it was very difficult to um, find things like planting machines and mulching machines and even just wood chips as a, as a general material. And I saw, I saw on your website that you use, it seems that you use quite a lot of machines to implement your systems. Could you, could you, explain to us a bit some of these machines that you use and it's quite exciting for for us yeah of course happy happy to jump into that so in the united states uh at least in the context that we're working with it, it agriculture looks like broad acre treeless landscapes uh with t tilled soil and it, to, to phrase this in the positive it's never been easier to plant trees because we're working with a blank slate and a lot of those a lot of the machines that have created that that blank slate can also help to diversify it. So 
whether that's starting with a, a tree transplanter uh, or a water wheel transplanter, it's a, it's a rain flow implement uh, to establish the crops through to, say, seeding uh, cover crops such as rye and Sudan grass in place with a, a drill seeder um, and then mowing all of that, that above ground biomass and raking it with a rotary rake that would usually be used to just kind of wake, rake hay into windrows we can actually rake that hay up against the side of the tree rows and use that as mulch. So using that in situ biomass to, to serve as mulch if, if wood chips are a more difficult option uh, to come by. On the wood chip front, uh, the, the main machinery that we use is, it's called a row mulcher. So a few brands to look up, Lanco, L-A-N-C-O, and then Mill Creek. So that, uh, it's, it's, it looks like a, a big trough, if you will, that's pulled behind a tractor and spits out the the bark mulch or wood chips or compost right out the side. And that's an extremely efficacious way to, to add biomass to a system. A lot of that biomass comes from either sawmills or existing forest uh, in, in the United States, or at least in the Northeast United States, there are a number of biomass power plants that burn wood chips for electricity just because we have so much existing forest. So diverting that, that uh, I guess, forest residue uh, to agricultural lands from power generating stations uh, is, is a way that we add fertility and water retention and whatnot to farms. So I've seen some of these, uh, I've seen some of these machines, some of the time they take is like, it can, they can plant 6,000 trees in a day, for example, things like this. Um, and it seems that you'd be able to set up an agroforest system in, um, in, um, you know, plant a hectare in, in half a day in this case, even a very complex one with a lot of species. Yeah. You know, I think it's important to kind of note that while planting speed is important, I would say planting quality is probably more important. Um, mm -hmm. and oftentimes with tree projects, what ends up happening is sacrificing quality for, for, um, just getting trees in the ground. And, um, you know, it, in terms of laying out these systems and making sure that they're sub-centimeter accurate, for, um, making sure that the um, all the materials and the protocols are in place to ensure a smooth planting process, making sure everyone's trained um, with when they're kind of planting the tree, how to plant it, how not to, to J-root it, how, to, how deep to stick it um, into the ground. Um, like all of those kind of protocols kind of get lumped in um, to the time it takes to make a project happen. And so while physically going with a tractor and a tree planter um, and sticking the tree in the ground itself might be fast, the planning process, the training process, the, ma the materials management and ensuring everything's set up for success is really where a lot of the time goes in to ensure that projects are successful. Um, and I think in terms of um, making sure that you're doing things right from the outset, you know, we, you can you can plant a system on a on a on seven acres within two days um, or within a day or a couple hours, depending on what you're doing, the spacing, et cetera. Um, but ensuring that the spacing is perfect, ensuring that the um, every stick or every root that is going in the ground is done so with the exact same method 
Um, that's really where the key is to ensure that projects are successful. Cool. And yeah, I just wanted to go a bit further. I mean, now we've covered uh, planting and, and it's been really interesting. But once the systems are planted, what kind of support do you offer farmers on management techniques, uh, be it pruning or harvesting? I mean, first of all, do you offer that kind of support? And if you do, how does that how is that deployed through time? An excellent question. Um, yeah, yes, we do um, offer that support. You know, every farm is different with how we engage. And so um, if the farm themselves is managing their own system and we're hands off, we're, it's, it's very much like a technical service um, provider. Um, one of the things that we're in the process of building out and opening up um, our process to is actually enabling our product from the analysis side to actually um, take care of a lot of those um, educational resources that are that allow for them to understand different management practices, as well as for them to document what they're doing um, on the farm. And so we're, we haven't released that yet, but um, where we're going is being able to provide those project development tools for farms. So that way they can get access to best practices and protocols um, in the form of primers, reading materials, videos, et cetera. Um, but also to give them the tools to enable to enable them to track what they're doing on the farm. Um, that I think that yeah, that's great. But that kind of sets a second question, which is um, about best practices. Because when Dimitri and I were trying to figure out the best thing to do for our trees in Greece, um, you have a lot of conflicting information. Even within the small agroforestry world, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of experimentation, and it's not always that easy to know what is the best thing to do. So I was wondering, how have you guys managed to access um, best practice? And I mean, have you find, found like certain key experts that you have trust in and that then you'd implement their, their let's say, techniques and philosophy? Or again, are you go more, going more towards the academic route? I'm, I'm really curious about that. It's a both and. Um, you know, every crop is different. So there's people who have expertise in managing that crop for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and there's a lot to be learned from both the conventional management of that crop, but also the people who have innovated um, and under, both looking at it in terms of the results of productivity, yield, et cetera, um, but also looking at it in terms of what the trade-offs are. And so for us, where we aggregate best practices is both looking at the things that have been successful in the past for all of those crops, the kind of the innovators, as well as the people who have done it from a conventional perspective. Um, but then also looking at it um, in terms of where people want to go and giving them the options to choose how they want to do it, uh, because there are so many options. You know, some of the best practices in terms of planting chestnuts um, involve using chemical sprays, um, some involve using mulch, um, some involve using weed mats. And so being able to provide the options and then being able to showcase kind of who does what and the outcomes that have resulted from that is really key. Um, so being less so preach, uh, preaching about what protocol is best, more so providing the best, best options that are known um, within the um, crop itself and the knowledge base of that crop. Yeah. And, and triangulating, say, a four-acre small-scale holistic apple producer's protocol with that of a 200 or uh, 200 acre organic apple orchard in 
the Pacific Northwest, uh, and then looking at what machinery and capabilities uh, a farm actually has, and modeling everything pretty exhaustively, uh, and then and then making recommendations from there. Yeah, I'd say one of the one of the areas where we've put some effort into, and this goes back to the conversation earlier about research and and where data and insights can can come from is that there is there are folks practicing agroforestry globally with different tools and equipment and so what what we're thinking is is really valuable is how can someone in Greece for example learn from uh, an insight from a producer in New York or Peru and you can to, to Harry's point about triangulation is to really start to get an understanding globally that um, there are different sets of knowledge and different tools and resources and pieces of equipment that can drive forward the outcome that we're trying to deliver, which which goes back to healthy landscapes, healthy food, um, and and to make sure that that all gets connected all the way through to the point where we're able to we're able to sit in a place of confidence and say we we have a very clear understanding from an analysis perspective of what's needed we have a very detailed understanding of where to get the resources we need to be successful on the farm and to be able to take that forward and be able to bring the capital into place with, without creating any added stress so I think a lot of this for us has been, what can we do to bring together communities um, to collaborate or, or co-operate, if you will, um, and, and remove risks? I think as we've reflected on our business and a lot of the conversations we've had over time is that um, there are many, many perceived risks for a successful agroforestry operation and it takes um, it takes a special kind of confidence to to be really to be willing to jump into that with without having answers. And I, I know you've both attempted this and have been successful at it in Greece. And if we think more globally, it's like what can we do to steward that education forward so that any agroforester globally, wherever they are can learn from what's happened, can see the research, can get access to the resources they need, and can find capital without any, without any nonsense. And at a, at a high level, that's what we are driving to accomplish. Ethan, I'm getting seriously excited behind my computer right now. <laughs> it, it, it's one of those like, ooh, smi- everyone should be smiling. I mean, I, I, I smile when I say stuff like that, but uh, you know, I, I'm biased. <laughs> Deirdre, I want to add one more important point to this, which is best practices are only as good as what the farm wants to implement. And so while we can come up with ideas of what makes sense um, and have options for them, at the end of the day, they might want to choose a weed, a weed mat instead of a, using a, rotor, uh, a rotary rake for, for raked hay because it makes more sense for the amount of time that they want to spend in using equipment on their farm. Um, And so 
I think a really pivotal part of this is being able to understand what the farm and the farm manager wants to do, not just um, what the um, what we think is best um, for the farm. Thanks so much for this. It's super clear. There's one thing, maybe kind of taking a step in the up in the other direction because it probably comes before implementation. But I just wanted to be clear about the whole financing aspect. And I mean, there's other uh, podcasts with um, investing in regenerative agriculture that really go into the detail of uh, the whole investment bit. So we won't go there necessarily, but just understanding from the farmer's perspective what that relationship means. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, every, every farm is different. Um, but if you think about trees in agricultural production systems, they, they act a lot like infrastructure. Um, and so when you plant a tree on a farm, um, that tree doesn't yield for a certain amount of years, and then it starts yielding and it provides kind of this relatively stable um, kind of asset that sits on the farm and adds value over time. Um, the kind of key to unlocking the financing of that that in the research that we did in being able to do that kind of comes from two places. One, um, looking at what people were doing in agriculture today that was limiting the scale of transitioning landscapes to new production models. Um, a lot of that had to do with buying land. Um, and we felt that to enable farmers that own land, to enable investors that um, already own land, um, to enable brands and buyers that have already a broad spectrum of, um, of a land footprint, that having a strategy that required us to um, buy land um, was not necessarily the way to go. So a big, the second piece of that was learnings from the solar industry and what they did. Um, looking at how they were able to actually separate the ownership of solar panels from the land itself uh, and enable investment directly into those solar systems. And so what we've built out in terms of financing is being able to invest into trees as assets separate from the land um, with a, on a long-term leasing basis while allowing for the farm to be managed in terms of the understory as a separate thing. So that way investors can invest into the trees directly. Um, on top of the land, um, while still enabling the farmers to manage that system the way in which they want to. Um, kind of the way in which that breaks down into specifics, the, there's multiple parties involved. The investors can invest into the trees. The farmers can engage in um, a profit share in those trees, as well as can get paid to manage those trees from that third party. Um, they can also buy out that tree system over time, the landowner who, so sometimes the farmer and the landowner are different if the land is being leased by that farmer. So if there's a, if an extra landowner, that landowner can also participate in a revenue share in that system um, through um, being able to comp lease rates um, in the short term to be able to get a percentage of that profit over the long term. And so what you end up with is a multi-party um, type of system where the farmers can manage the system, get paid to manage the system, um, and over time can build equity in the system, um, as well as um, without having to buy land, we lower the amount of capital needed to get exposure from an investment perspective into fruit, nut, and timber crops on land. And that's the kind of the basic framework yeah. for it. 
Yeah, and adding to what Jeremy's pointing out there, I think it's important to point out that we're, we're looking at markets that are, are pretty stable uh, and that things like fruits, nuts, and timber are are fairly well understood from an economic perspective and that we're not asking for something that's uh, wildly misunderstood from an investment perspective. I mean, at a, in a very simple way to put that is people will continue to buy apples. And so that's a crop we work with, for example. And to Jeremy's point about solar, there were some pretty significant tools used in the development of the solar industry that helped drive the investment uh, industry into solar as an asset class, particularly getting to the point where banks felt very comfortable. And this is around things like the power purchase agreement, um, where you basically have a forward contract on the electricity production prior to the solar array being installed. Now, to try and transfer that logic to agriculture, you want to be able to, for example, invest in the trees before they're planted based off of the productivity of those trees and the, the fruits, nuts, or timber that they'll produce. Now, granted, the time between electricity production and um, fruit production is much different, but, but needless to say that the, the logic is similar. And so from an investment perspective, what we're doing is connecting those dots and finding the areas that have been successful in scaling up other industries, moving from the, like in solar, pilot projects into a more scale up phase and ultimately commercialization where you have many, many projects, you have banks involved, and that there's a lot of these different components going on from an industry perspective so that there's a robust business ecosystem. And that's, that's where we're moving. There's a little bit of um, adding the kind of like oil, oiling up the gears, if you will, so that from an industry perspective, that can all take place. And I think that's where we're moving pretty quickly within agroforestry and regenerative agriculture as they're becoming much more um, hotly discussed opportunities in agriculture and impact investing and beyond. And you were talking about connecting dots. And for me, maybe the last dot that I need to connect is understanding once the crop is ready to harvest, how is the commercialization taking place? And I'm assuming you also have a part to play in that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I know we had touched on this very briefly earlier of the the importance of access to markets and how we want to make sure that buyers are, commercial buyers are engaged in the process. I mean, effectively what you want is knowledge that when, once the crop is harvested, that there somebody is already committed to a purchasing price that is fair and that they're, they're ready to receive that product. Well, back to what I was saying about the power purchase agreement, there's an ongoing discussion in the ag world uh, around something called the produce purchase agreement. Uh, essentially, you buy the crop before the trees are planted at a set price. 
for lack of a better way to say it. Um, so that's one of the avenues that we're, we're working on and, and really building relationships with commercial buyers, whether those are consumer goods brands, uh, retailers, distributors, restaurants, uh, et cetera, even, even wineries or cideries. Um, value add is an important component of this as well. And so being able to connect a fully operable agroforestry system and its outputs, the fruits, nuts, and timber directly to the place where it's going to land, say, uh, on your table as the consumer, that everything in between is taken care of. And we recognize pretty early with Propagate that asking our farmers to both be excellent agroforesters, know everything from a technical perspective around the oper the operations and maintenance of their farm, to also be brilliant marketeers and know how to sell their product in every corner of the planet and where it goes and to be able to negotiate it on price and like and be able to go to the banks and be able to negotiate really good financing deals and be able to take on debt or equity for the development of their farms. It's a very tall ask. Um, and now to add to it, we're asking our farm community, by the way, figure out how to sequester carbon and how to, how to build soil health and retain water. I mean, all of a sudden you're staring, you're kind of staring at this going, that's a lot. Thanks for the, yeah. thanks for asking me to do everything. <laughs> um, and so, you know, from, from our perspective, if we can start to remove some of those, those challenges, particularly around access to markets. Um, and so like to give you an example, we're working with a, with a large uh, pasture raised egg company here in the United States. And they're very interested in agroforestry because there's so much ecological value because it delivers more profitability for the farms that they already work for. And so there's a really clear incentive for this, this food company to work with the farmers they already talk to on a daily basis uh, and to build agroforestry into their, their operation. Uh, and now we're working on a cost share program with them to help those, those farmers within their supply chain transition to agroforestry um, and so there's, there's an example, you know, another example, we work with, um, a, a beer company that makes a, a really awesome, uh, black currant sour beer. And it's, it's one of those beers that you kind of wish you had like every day on a hot summer day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You gotta be careful because it, it's one of the good ones. And so, um, with, with that in mind, you know, there's a clear opportunity for them to start to vertically integrate into their own supply chain, the production of black currants. And that beer happens to be one of their better selling beers. So it's, it's I think some of the, the marketing components around bringing buyers to the table and making sure that the price per pound of the crop is delivered, that you find the areas where there, there's a clear um, incentive or, or a clear opportunity that creates a, a winning scenario. And, the, and to be completely honest, that is not always true. 
you know, sometimes there are contracts that get put in place that are not perfect. And it's, it's sort of the nature of business, but also what we can do by bringing in long-term partners and collaborators is finding the opportunity to connect to your point, connect those dots in a way where people have a vested interest in the ecological health and more importantly, the economic health of the farm. One of the aspects that that you, you've you've talked a, a lot about just now, and that has been actually an overarching uh, theme in in this whole conversation we've been having, um, that holds farmers back the most is is innovating new systems. Uh, for innovating new systems on the farm is economic viability, and as you said just now, that's especially the case for agroforestry. So this is something we wanted to dig a bit deeper in with you guys, um, because we think you have uh, something really important to bring to the table here. Um, to this whole agroforestry conversation and you know from your experience and from what you've been able to model and to understand how profitable is it you know how does it actually improve in what way and does it actually improve the farm's economic viability of course so uh i guess to gauge profitability there are a few different metrics that we have to look at uh and this this really dives into uh, I guess reasonably, but not so reasonably complex, but not unreasonably complex financial modeling over 20 years. Two of those really important metrics that we're looking at are the net present value of a tree system and the internal rate of return. So to make that a bit more accessible, the, the net present value is the aggregate of all of the future net income from that crop. All of the future profits, say from uh, right when it starts yielding, uh, or actually right when uh, it's installed, through to when it's been in production for say five to ten plus years, and to communicate that future value back to today's dollars, what we use is is a process called discounted cash flow, which which phrases um, cash inflows in the future in today's dollars. Um, so happy to dive into that more. Um, it's a bit complex, but it's absolutely necessary in looking at multi-year profitability um, because there is that time lag to yield. Uh, secondly, the, the internal rate of return, the best way to look at it is if you were to get a loan from a bank to finance that this system, what interest rate would essentially eat all of your profits? So if you borrowed from a bank to finance the system at 12%, um, then that, that's a pretty high interest rate, um, at least in the United States. And if you had a 12% IRR on your yields, you would end up with um, $0 in, in net income because that all of that money to um, uh, service your debt would be going to the bank. So the higher the internal rate of return, the IRR, the higher the profitability. Could you translate some of these tools and what they tell you for some of the different systems that you're implementing? Is it something that, you know, is, is the, as you said, the internal rate of return, is it interesting based on the kind of funding the, the farmers can get? Is it something that is, is the economic aspect, an argument that really gets to, to convince farmers or not? Yeah, it's a really good question. And to, to bring the, the IRR point close to home with 
with with something Jeremy mentioned earlier around the separate the separation of the tree as an asset from the land. One of the things in our economic modeling that became very clear is to increase the IRR of a project. Um, the only focusing on the trees as assets without the cost of purchasing the real estate. Uh, so remove the cost of the land that actually increases the IRR. So to what Harry was pointing out a second ago around having a, a higher IRR, some of the structural components are really important from an investment perspective so that both our farm operators are profitable and as investors get engaged that their their return is delivered in a much more exciting way and and so that's where we really wanted to be able to pull strings on this call it design of the investment or the structure of how this gets put together and we've talked a bit about some of that on the investing in regenerative agriculture podcast um Anyhow, I wanted to point that out as as one of the areas that's an important structural factor for why we focus on that as a, an opportunity. And, and then there's plenty to build on there, Harry or Jeremy, if you want to want to add to that. Yeah, of course. And and just look in. I guess on on Ethan's point, separating the trees as assets from the land itself enables much higher IRRs. So at least in the United States, it's generally not viable to cash flow a mortgage with an agricultural income, except in very rare scenarios. That's just kind of the economic climate we're living in today. And mm-hmm. so I, IRRs can range from say nine to 18 to 22% depending on value add and vertical integration. So selling uh, just straight elderberries unprocessed, it, it, it doesn't do a whole lot just because the lack of, of buyers and all of, all of the margin there is really in selling a finished product, uh, such as elderberry syrup. However, blueberries are the opposite. Selling, having access to markets for fresh berries is, is really the, the go uh, on that front. Another important point to make is looking at all of this from a perspective where the capital is available is a completely different paradigm than bootstrapping a system uh, that needs to cash flow itself year over year. Um, So it's, it's, you, you can have as, as high a 20 year IRR uh, as you like, but if the capital isn't available to, uh, to, to start up that system, then that's, I mean, a high RR is all well and good, but the, the access to financing and say equity financing um, is really the leverage point that we've landed on in agroforestry. Yeah. And, I just want to build on that a little bit. And I think it's important to note that you can do a lot of things to lower the risk of a project, but that also oftentimes can lower the return on a project. Meaning if you have a single buyer that guarantees a price and you buy that product for, you have them buy that product for five years, um, 
that might limit the amount of upside of a project where you might have more than one contract. You might have five contracts that are paying negotiated prices on an annual basis. And so a big part of the equation is understanding um, at the farm gate, what level of risk is that farm interested in um, for the end products that they're selling? Um, and between that and understanding um, the capital needs of what it takes to achieve those returns is really key to understanding at a farm level what the return can be. Um, I think it's it, everyone always wants to know how profitable it is. And it's kind of to, to say it's context specific um, is a, I want to make sure that isn't, doesn't, isn't an out of the, on the question, but it is really uh, a way of saying that the returns can be incredibly high or the returns can be low and stable, much like a commodity. And it's really about the approach um, on a farm level basis. And, and I guess that's also you adapt the system or, oh, I mean, like, a, for example, a timber system would have a much, you know, longer term kind of strategy, whereas a, a berry integrated um, a system would be short term cash flow, possibly higher risk. Um, so it also depends based on, you know, the farmer, his needs, the context, and you will adapt the, the, the agroforestry model, which will have an impact on the whole financial situation of the farm. Yeah, it, maybe to bring us down to a specific example, um, selling trees on the stump is much um, less um, value back to the farm than selling mill lumber. And if the cost of milling that lumber in a, with a custom miller on site um, is, is lower than the value add that you get from the difference in selling that milled, um, it makes sense to mill that on site and sell finished goods than it, more so than it does to just sell it on the stump. Now, on a, on a project basis, some farms just might want to sell it on the stump and make a little bit less money if they know that it's a little bit less work and a little bit less cost. Um, and so doing those types of analyses as to both what the farm is able to do and wants to do compared with what the actual upside is of a farm um, product um, is part of the, the work. And so you won't... Just to bring it down a little level, and I understand that all of all of these answers are very context specific and depend on the farmer. And apologies if I'm trying to simplify uh, two things too much. Um, um, but bring it bring it down a level. You won't engage in a in a project um, um, on a farm. Do you have like a standard of if it doesn't provide so much, um, you know, a certain rate of return or a certain IRR, etc., you will not engage in that project. Do you kind of uh, have an economic um, a standard? The, the short answer is no, and the reason for that is some farms just want an ecological yield and don't necessarily want an economic yield. Um, okay. And so in those cases, mm -hmm. we, it, it's still important for them to understand the cost of doing that implementation and to try to showcase the data of where that value might be coming from. For example, I'm looking at the yield of mulberry drops in chicken systems for feed value in field, um, where it might not be directly a investable return, but it's something that um, from an investment perspective can be quantified in terms of the value that's being gained from that um, integrated into their poultry production system. Um, so the short answer is we're agnostic to what the farm's goals are in integrating trees. Um, in terms of from an investment perspective, those are much more clear in terms of the types of outcomes we're looking for um, on a farm basis. 
and part of that mm-hmm. is looking at the scale of the farm, um, the risk of the project in terms of the manager and how experienced they are, and then the the products that are being selected, um, how confident we are in the markets to be able to fulfill in the contracts that we're projecting within the analysis. Um, and that what we look at in terms of financing is different than what we look at in terms of service providing for agroforestry change. And just to understand and, and push a bit more this um, example, so then you do have clients which are farms which aren't seeking uh, external investments and then just come to you uh, for kind of technical expertise. And so they'll be kind of investing themselves into the ecological benefits of their own production. Is that correct? Exactly. And say if, if you're going to plant trees, especially a large number of trees, and really just phrase that as a cost to your operations, uh, or a, a, just a, a cost or an, an asset on, on the balance sheet, if that model spits out a negative return, it's important to know how much, A, a how much that's going to cost, and what would it take to move that into a positive return, either through just really monetizing um, the ecosystem service benefits, whether that's formally through something like payments for ecosystem services, or informally, um, I guess, it, uh, through, through one um, route, say, shade benefit for livestock, but also just the enjoyment of the farm. So how, how much are, is someone willing to, how much money is someone willing to contribute to bring a system into existence that is otherwise unprofitable? And what would it take to make that profitable? Agroforest systems, you know, when you're planting trees, um, naturally you're starting to look more into the long, medium and, and long term. So how are, you, how are the farmers adapting their strategies or how are you noticing farmers adapting their medium and long term strategies on the farm? Yeah, I mean, farmers contribute a huge amount to thinking about the management um, as well as thinking about the offtakes. It's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating how much when they start to get engaged, how much farmers really start to add value to the system beyond what we can actually add ourselves. Um, and they start to look at their own systems differently um, and get excited about what's possible when they start to see different results. Um, whether it be through far- farms initially feeling like it might be complex to do hay between rows of trees and then eventually feeling like, oh, this is easy. This is exciting. Um, I might be able to do this more often. And it, it actually, I can understand it now. Um, through to them engaging and calling buyers themselves um, and being able to understand where they're going to sell that product. Um, it re- really is a range. And that's in terms of the types of farmers we work with. We work with farmers that are the most conservative or um, Mennonite or Amish communities um, for, for, through to more progressive farmers. And across the board, um, farmer, the farmers themselves, because they're problem solvers in their own right, they're willing to d- get their hands dirty and dig in and understand the systems um, and be willing to kind of find the places where they're most um, interested in adding value um, for themselves. With Dimitri, we've talked about this numerous times um, working on, on the land, is that we've you know talked about this tension that there is between, on the one hand, ecology that drives you to complexify systems um, and you know towards diversification, 
And on the other hand, having to balance this with an economic logic that you know pushes you more towards uh, efficiency and standardization to allow for mechanization, and it's like you're constantly walking on this tightrope. And I was wondering, have you encountered this tension? And if so, how do you manage it? In short, I'll say delicately. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a really great deep dive to deep dive to go into, and it's 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 we can one of the ways to look at it is we can take a maximal approach or a minimalist approach and adding a single species to a pasture increases biodiversity and if that species is economically profitable then we we can have our cake and eat it too um and i'll I'll just add that we work a certain amount of support species into the system. So every every tenth row might be hyper biodiverse, such to provide those pollinator and fungal benefits to the system. Um, and that that that's really just phrased as a cost. But the more we can say instead of just normal sunflowers or normal normal, uh, it's it's Helianthus divaricatus. That's a woodland sunflower in the, in the U.S., the more we can switch to something like Jerusalem artichoke, Helianthus tuberosus, or from normal shrub willow to, say, an ornamental willow, and, and at least create the possibility for an economic yield, then the more we can do that, the better. And, and to kind of add to this, I think oftentimes, um, you know, we have to ask ourselves, what is the ecological state that we're looking to achieve? Is it ecological stability of a human managed system or is it the biodiversity of a native forest and i think you know we agrofor- agroforestry in many ways is a managed managing complexity um, but it is still a human engaged system um, where we're we're not just leaving it to be and turning it back into native forest and so i think we have to be somewhat honest with the fact that really it, it is the human's goals largely defining the system's context and um, being able to provide ecological value um, in certain cases may uh, be at odds with, 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 with being able to provide um, human uh, value. And a good example of this might be um, things like vole pressure in fields, um, things like um, being able to uh, ensure that we're not cultivating a deer habitat for um, within the fields. And so part of designing the system is to design within the, um, the natural predator and prey relationships that nature provides us, but also not being afraid of using certain approaches like um, removing biomass from the field in um the fall and winter to decrease of all habitat um, such that we can ensure that the trees survive um, and uh, potential vole damage. It's, it's that balance that's really key um, to ensure that the human outcomes are really being prioritized, um, even though we are delicately managing um, the ecological effects of what we're trying to accomplish um, on the farm. And again, are these decisions... Um made by you or do you offer a you know a, a palette of choices and consequences and then 
those you know investors or farmers make choices um how how does that happen it's a total palette and and, and selection you know the if a farm just wants to plant a single tree let's say they just want to plant a pecan orchard um then that that is something that's totally within what we do though we work with them to help them understand the benefits of integrating a pollinator uh, row into that pecan orchard um so that way they can come to understand what increasing diversity can do to, in terms of adding value but in, we're not going to um be um very uh, we're how do I say this? we're not we're not militant that that is the solution that every farm needs to do because every farmer is different and they have different goals. And at the same time, we will provide them with the info that bats, for instance, provide $22.9 billion worth of ecosystem services per year to farmers globally, specifically in, in pest control. And say in certain regions um, of, we'll say the, the global South, the tropical climates, um, it's something like a 1% increase in bats amounts to a 10% decrease in malaria deaths. So things like that, that really hit home um, in terms of understanding the benefits of an intact ecology uh, is, is something we really bring into the farm design process. On the same topic, um, one of the things I wanted to, to add is, you know, how uh, the importance, especially when looking at agroforestry, of putting value on diversity as well. Like, for example, complexifying um, tree lines, um, therefore pro providing different products that can have a value, etc. But obviously, this also has costs because, you know, more complex um, a commercial strategy, more, more products to sell will incur more costs or potentially could. Yeah, I, I, I think an important concept that we like to, to kind of throw around is the concept of structural biodiversity um, without compromising commercial productivity. And so the... For example, if, if you're going to produce a product that needs to be machine harvested, putting a tree within that row that's going to be uh, a deterrent to um, being able to manage that shrub crop is um, really not going to be a positive economic benefit to the farm. But adding a row of trees next to a row of those, um, those shrub crops allows for you to have structural biodiversity. Um, into that system without compromising that commercial productivity. Essentially, the, the, the predatory wasps that live in the rough, structural diverse, structurally diverse biomass in one row will just fly over to the apple trees and lay their eggs in, in the caterpillars, for instance. The, the, the biodiversity doesn't necessarily need to be in the row of apples or blackcurrant itself. And, and there are some, there's some good data um, on the distance from certain species that you gain a benefit in terms of pollinators or predatory insects um, within a system. So part of it is ensuring that we're, we're not putting the biodiversity so far away that it's um, in, in many ways not really a benefit to the core crops, um, but keeping it um, further, far enough away such that it doesn't impede commercial activity. It's a huge uh, topic, uh, the whole uh, complexity within agricultural systems and something that we won't be able to completely break down in 10 minutes. But we had one final question that, that we prepared for you and, um, um, you know, bringing this um, 
interview to 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 an end slowly. Um, what's been the biggest challenge as a company to reach your objectives of scaling agroforestry or convincing or working with farmers to implement agroforestry? It's a, it's a loaded question. I, I, I have a simple answer. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, it comes down to dollars and cents. Um, at, the, at the end of the, the, the day, we're adding valuable assets to farmland. And um, the general rule of thumb is that permanent crops have um, far more value in terms of the amount of value captured by the plant per acre comparatively to row crops, row crop production systems or grass. And so in, in adding that value, the case is made for itself. Now, putting all the pieces together is kind of a is needs to be in place before you can make that case but that's what we're we're doing and and the if we can put all the pieces together the 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 value of the crops themselves speak for themselves so thank you so much for taking the time and for sharing everything that you've shared of course and and thanks for having us and yeah excited to uh uh, we're excited for, for this, this agroforestry podcast. And, uh, if, if it makes sense to hop on round two with us, we're, we're more than happy. Yeah. Agreed. We really appreciate you guys having us on and inviting us to be part of this. Um, the, the, the world of agroforestry is growing and we're, we're excited to have friends all over the, the planet that, uh, we can be collaborators in this journey with us. So thank you. Thank you so much for making it this far and for listening to this episode. We really hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Since we're starting out here, it's really important for us that we get your feedback and we'd really like you to get in touch with us and um, tell us what you think, what you liked, what you didn't, what kind of questions you'd like us to ask our guests, as well as um, what guests you'd like to see on the podcast. You can also offer suggestions. Um, you can do that through our website. Uh, you'll have there's all the forms there and uh, and and the email. The link is below, um, and, but you can also find it on www.regenerativeagroforestry.org. And of course, all the links to the episode will be below as well. So, yeah, I think that's it. And thank you so much again for listening. And we're really looking forward to the next one.